Welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Today, I am your solo host, Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm going to have the pleasure of speaking with a sociologist of education, Christine Baker-Smith. Before we get to the interview, I just want to uh, encourage everyone to check out our social media at End of Sport Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, If you'd like to send us an email, try us at theendofsport.com at gmail.com. Uh, we've getting a lot of great feedback from folks and it really gives us a good sense of what people are enjoying, what you want to see more of. So please continue to hit us up there. Um, and if you would be so kind just to pass on that you like the show to other people you know uh, and to rate us on platforms like iTunes and others. I have heard on many other podcasts that people claim that that helps people find the show. I don't have any idea whatsoever if that is true, but I'm going to take that at its word uh, and ask you to help us out that way. Maybe leave a review. If it is a kind review, um, that would be very, very much appreciated. Christine Baker-Smith is the Managing Director and Director of Research at the Hope Center for College, Community, and Justice in Philadelphia and member of the Department of Education at Temple University. In the last few days, she and her colleagues at the Hope Center, Sarah Goldwick-Rab and Brianna Richardson, released a report entitled Hungry to Win, a first look at food and housing insecurity among student-athletes. I'm delighted to have Dr. Baker-Smith here with me today to discuss that study. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Terrific. Well, listen, before delving into the study, let me just ask you, how are you holding up these days? How are things in Philadelphia? Philadelphia is quiet um, for those of us who are working from home every day. Uh, sure. So I, you know, we have dog walks and that's about it. That's fair. Yeah. Um, hanging in. As we're hanging in. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, listen, um, to begin with, because um, I think probably most of our listeners are not yet familiar with this study. It's a brand new study just came out. Um, yes. Can you give us a brief appraisal, uh, maybe even as by way of background, particularly for our non-U.S. listeners, sure. why housing and food insecurity are such a pervasive problem in U.S. higher education more generally, before we even get to the sport piece? All right. So the HOPE Center has been doing what has become a very important survey over the last five years where we have highlighted the fact that students attending higher ed in the U.S. are often food and housing insecure. In fact, about 50% of students nationally report being food insecure at some point in the 30 days before they took our survey. We do this survey once a year. The rates have not changed much across the years, even though we have expanded both the number of uh, students that we are surveying and the number of colleges. In fact, what we're seeing is that the rates are pretty consistent. We don't know how that will change with COVID, um, so stay tuned for our results next year. Um, But one of the important pieces, particularly for those who aren't in the U.S. context to understand, is that higher education in the U.S. is not a public benefit. Um, Most students in the United States are responsible for paying for tuition and room and board for 
attending a higher education institution. And that means that they are, they are tasked with finding ways to fund those expenses. And we have long known that tuition is growing in the US, the cost of tuition. But one of the things that the Hope Center strives to do is to remind everyone that students are humans first. And one of the things that means is that they need their basic needs met as well. And there's financial support in federal dollars and scholarship dollars and all of those kinds of good things and loans uh, for students to attend college. But usually that uh, financial support focuses only on the academic portion, which means that students often have to find other ways to provide for themselves and their families, because many of them have families. They are not 18-year-old single uh, frat boys. That is not the norm. Um, even though it is often portrayed as the norm in the media, 75% of U.S. students who are in higher education go to a public university, not one of those Ivies like Yale or Harvard. 75%. 25% of students who attend college today are parents as well. Um, so providing for families is a real thing. What kind of costs would you, I mean, and I, you may not have the figures off the top of your head, but like, let's just use things. Let's try to take a couple examples as hypotheticals. We, may, we won't have necessarily the exact dollar figures, but um, so you're in Pennsylvania. So mm-hmm. I'll just kind of use that as a context. And you're at Temple. So Temple's a good example. I'm at Duke. You're at Temple. Um, we're yeah. really in a similar kind of universe of private, those are private universities we're talking about. Um, then you got, let's say, a Penn State, which is mm-hmm. a major public university in Pennsylvania. What kind of differences are we seeing there in terms of costs for students, both in terms of tuition and also in terms of this key room and board piece? Sure. So this is immensely complex, but let's try to simplify it. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're talking about going to a public institution, so a public, a Penn State, for example, Mm -hmm. um, the way that those are meant to be affordable is for students attending within their state. So we're going to take the what's called out-of-state tuition, and I'm going to say let's not talk about that. Let's talk about in-state tuition. So I'm a 25-year-old single mother in Philadelphia, and I want to go to college. Mm -hmm. If I'm paying tuition at Penn State, I'm paying about $19,000 a year in just tuition. Right. At Temple yeah. University, it's a little bit less than that, but similar. It's about 17000 for this year. For an in-state student. So Temple's – that's fascinating to me. I actually yeah. – I'm really taking it back there. Temple. So these are both – so Temple is a little bit funky. Um, okay. So we're going to don't, – don't think too hard about that one, and I won't even <laughs> go into the details. Okay. Let's think about Penn State. Penn State's a good one. Okay. Um, so you're looking at fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year in tuition. That does not include room and board. And what I'm going to do is encourage the listeners to think about what you spend in a month on your rent and your electricity and your food. Because actually, fewer than 20% of students live on a campus. Almost all students live off campus in the U.S., which nobody thinks about. No, it's, not especially not me. I mean, Duke, no. I, Duke is distorting my uh, perspective. Partly because, by the way, I should tell you, I'm Canadian. 
So that's one reason that's why the Duke the looms large. Yes, that's what that's why Duke <laughs> looms large in my mind because I actually don't. I mean, I, I know of the kind of universe of U.S. higher education, but it's an abstraction to me other than Duke, which is obviously very concrete. So, like, sure. I was paying six thousand dollars a year Canadian um, to go to the University of Toronto, which, by the way, would fancy itself to be a Duke-like institution in the kind of Canadian context. It holds itself out as this hard, sort of Harvard of the North uh-huh. and all that nonsense, all that nonsense that goes with it. And I was a commuter student from home, so I was literally on. Right. Hook for that six thousand, and then I had some scholarships and whatever else. So um, obviously, this is like that's a completely different universe of costs than what you're talking about here. Oh yeah, we are. So I just looked up while we were on the phone here. So Temple, for example, is estimating that. Where did I see this? Um, well, I mean, you're thinking about tens of thousands of dollars, right, in room and board costs. And I'm not even talking about fees and books and supplies. Yes. So okay. this is what the Hope Center talks about a lot. And we're actually really excited in the um, upcoming year. We'll also be talking about transportation ah. as a basic need, um, yep. which will be real interesting. That has uh, gotten more interesting with COVID. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're rethinking that one. Um, <laughs> sure. But and how we approach that. But yeah, so we're looking at tens of thousands of dollars a year that students are spending to access their higher education. And I will reiterate, because it's important to the athlete context, that many of them, they're most students are not coming up with this out of pocket. They are applying for the primary way we do this is you fill out what's called a FAFSA, which is a federal student aid form. And then that qualifies you for loans from the federal government um, and some other financial assistance, depending on who you are and what your need is. So students usually start there. It is a brutal form that not all students make it through. And even if you do make it through it, we're talking about loans for the majority of these costs. And the places where students, one of the most unique ways to fund higher ed is getting scholarships, um, particularly for athletes. Although I want to recognize that many athletes go to college and play college level sports and don't receive scholarships for them yeah we're gonna get into those issues absolutely so um okay this is good this is great so this is great context um for kind of these large these larger issues um and and by the way the debt piece you're getting at there right this is why we have this student debt crisis in the united states um which is kind of this is what so on the one hand we have folks um struggling to find housing and um struggling with food insecurity and then nonetheless like even after having gone through that experience right i'm imagining in many mm-hmm. cases those same individuals are then subsequently burdened with debt that is very Correct. hard to take yeah that's absolutely it's terrible um <laughs> okay well uh before digging into the data about student athletes um i actually want to i want to kind of get at some of the complications because as we've, as we've you've already been sort of unpacking for us, right, the U.S. higher con- uh, higher education is incredibly complex to navigate for anyone. Um, and, and so in the study, you say um, that the, quote, rules and restrictions that comp- you refer to the rules and restrictions that complicate the lives of student athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, what are those rules and, re- re- and restrictions that you folks are referring to uh, for our listeners? 
So I'm going to give a couple of examples, and I have to admit here that I am a researcher more than I am an athletic scholar. And sure. Nathan, I may tap you to answer one of these questions. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> um, but we can start with the, I'm going to start with the simplest and most obvious, though it's not necessarily the most common situation, mm-hmm. which is for Division I athletes, where the, who are the ones that you see in your NCAA tournament. Uh, for March Madness, which we sadly didn't get to have this year. Those athletes have restrictions around what they are allowed to earn, what they are, the dollars they are allowed to accept when they are on scholarship. And there are a number of ways that this is starting to play out in the U.S. policy world, which is very exciting, but it is one of these restrictions, one of these rules and regulations that is impacting student athletes and will impact them right now when we have these federal CARES dollars coming down if they are not able to access those dollars without losing their scholarships. Can you tell us a little bit about the Real College Survey then uh, and how this project on college athletes fits within that larger project specifically? So you're already getting at that, this kind of project that you conduct every year. But I'm just Mm -hmm. curious now, as we start to get towards the data, um, perhaps also just give us a sense of the research question for the study, um, especially when it pertains to college athletes, the sort of sample size you're talking about and where that sample is drawn from. Sure. So I'm going to start with the research question. We hear a lot, um, there are lots of great stories about student athletes. And quite frankly, there are a number of them that have come out over the last even decade where student athletes have talked about suffering from homelessness, food insecurity, housing insecurity, and they have caught our attention. Um, However, we didn't know what the extent of that problem was. Often those stories, which are quite powerful, are countered by conversations about, well, the athletes have scholarships and they should be fine. Um, We wanted to know if that was in fact true. And I'm going to use that to take a little bit of a bigger picture view. Mm -hmm. The point of this survey is to understand real college students and their real college experiences. And what that means is we started out by trying to understand food and housing insecurity. And like any good sociologist, we asked questions about demographic characteristics. Uh, What is your gender? What is your race, ethnicity? Are you a parent? Are you married? Uh, Those kinds of questions. The more we did this survey, we have, when when this survey is in the field, students email us every day. saying, thank you for asking about my experience. I want to tell you my story. Um, And those stories have been part of what has guided the questions we have added to the survey. Um, Students have said, I am a parent as well as a student. And here's how that's hard. I am an LGBTQ youth and my parents have disowned me, I can't get financial aid because I have to have their signature on the form. Um, There are all kinds of stories like this. And one of the stories 
has been, you know, this connects to what makes a real college student a real college student. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, they're not the student you picture that you see in American media um, on Felicity, or that totally tells you my age, but um, any number of the TV shows about college in the American higher education system those aren't really real college students. Real college students are the majority of college students who attend public universities and our parents and are trying to make ends meet and have their own and are immigrants and all kinds of other things to make them unique and that they identify as. And those stories are important to tell. So... We, so what we've done, the way this, this survey works is that we invite colleges to participate and then we send them an email with a hyperlink to the survey and the colleges blast that out. So this year we had over 167,000 students at 227 community colleges and four-year colleges and universities across 44 states and the District of Columbia. So that is our biggest sample yet. Um, Each year it grows. And we had of that sample, we had about 3,500 student athletes who who said, yes, I'm a student athlete and also took our survey. Importantly, and I want to highlight this because it's an important nuance of the report, which is when we talk about scholarships and the concern about rules and regulations around scholarships, that applies to Division I students. And that's actually a relatively small group of schools in our sample because we have such a large two-year college response. Um, But the interesting thing is there are lots of students playing sports, even at the two-year colleges. And I'm sure, Nathan, you can talk about JUCOs and how that works. But there are lots of ways that students are engaging in sports. And 14% of student athletes at the Division I schools um, reported that they had experienced homelessness in the last year. And 24% at those Division I schools, which are mostly the better resource schools, and those are the students we expect are on scholarships, that we do not have that data, I want to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, 24% of them were food insecure in the last 30 days. And those numbers are much higher at division two, three in the two year colleges. So how do you, I mean, and again, this is obviously, this is speculative for you at sure. this point, right? You just received this data. And, and so you're trying to parse it at this point. Um, mm-hmm. But why might we see those levels of housing and food insecurity among those, as you've put it, most, the most privileged sort of strata of student athletes in this kind of U.S. higher education um, landscape? So these, these are folks at the, not only exclusively, but the, the Penn States and the temples of the world. Uh-huh. Um, as you pointed out, some of those student athletes are on scholarship. Some of them are not. Okay, so we understand that. And so that that may, in fact, is, is that the, would you say that's the whole explanation or is part of this potentially no. the, okay, so go, please give me a window into what you're thinking. So I'm going to tell you a story. Um, the student athletes that have room and board and tuition covered based on their scholarship, 
So these are the ones we would expect to not be having trouble. Mm -hmm. Those student athletes are in a dorm. Now, if I'm a student athlete from North Philly and I don't have a home anymore because for whatever reason, I'm not going home anymore. When the dorms close over winter break, where do I go? Where do I eat? That's, that's my first and most clear answer, um, is even at these places where they are well supported. Now, some of those colleges stay open for certain groups of students. Um, There are, of course, always exceptions, but, and also let's remember that those athletes are on scholarship for a sports season, like they're on scholarship for the year, but I would imagine their supports are different during the sports season and outside of the sports season. Right, right. They still go home for the summer. Sure they do. Um, And I I mean, as someone who's, um, I live close to the Duke campus and I'll take my my little one onto campus, you know, at off Mm -hmm. time. And uh, there's no question that it's a ghost town. If it's spring break, uh, if it's the winter holidays, as you say, summer outside of summer classes. Yeah, it's it's astounding. Um, Like, (laughs) yeah, it is amazing. (laughs) Exactly. Because students at Duke, and this was another shock to me, students at Duke are required to be on campus for uh, three years of their four-year experience. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with a kind of racist dynamic in terms of the sort of segregation of Durham uh, as Uh a city historically in the sense that like this largely white student body, quote unquote, had to be segregated from the largely black city of Durham, um, Mm -hmm. a deeply problematic part of this history. but anyway, at, what, what, for whatever reason, we see it. Yeah, the student, students are just gone. And that wasn't what I experienced at the University of Toronto, which was really integrated into the city in a very different kind of way. You know, like there are ways in which like the buildings of the campus, the buildings of the city, um, it's hard to tell them apart. So like it might be uh, out of um, out of season for the academic year, right outside of the semester. But like people were always milling around the University of Toronto campus in a very, very different way than I experienced it here. So I can see how um, the restaurants, right, the, that are... Because it feels like restaurant doesn't feel. That's another thing that feels totally different about Duke. It's like the kind of food court that students have. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it's, it, that's what it feels like a like uh, executive food court at like Toronto's most posh shopping <laughs> mall. Uh, it doesn't feel like a, a student um, dining experience that I kind of understand. But I mean, of course, those restaurants are closed, right? Because right. Why, how could they be open if they have no student population to cater to? And that's the crisis they're experiencing right now, right? And people are experiencing exactly. all over exactly. this country. Well, and think about, um, I know that the NCAA has worked to expand food supports for student athletes, Mm -hmm. but I can't help but wonder the student athletes who get off the team bus after a, um, after a late game somewhere and it's 11 o'clock at night and you know, they're hungry. Is the dining hall open? Exactly. I mean, there are just really basic things that are definitely impacting student athletes on top of the regulations and the policies that exist. That's so true. Um, now, one thing I want to ask, and you've been getting at this already, is that when I was looking through um, kind of the the, um, the sample of your study, I saw that only two what I would call Power Five schools mm-hmm. participated, that, and I would say those are so those are West Virginia and the University of Kansas. Yeah. Uh, who are I would say very representative likely very representative power five schools um uh-huh. uh, both of them for those who are non non-us listeners um we're talking about large public universities in that case what we call like research one public universities in those respective states uh 
How do you think, though, that the fact that we only have two of those, even in the, so because you had mentioned, right, we had the Division One sample, with, we had yeah. approximately 14% of the um, homelessness problem and mm-hmm. 24 with the food precarity piece um, of the Division One, but it was of those Division One schools, we only have two Power Five schools. How do you think that that might uh, influence the results? Uh, and would you infer that the findings here would hold across big-time college sport, or do you think? I mean, this is again guessing. We might find slightly better conditions in the context if this was a study exclusively of big-time college sport. So what I'm going, I'm going to parse that and say I think it depends on if you're looking at private or public institutions. Okay. I think that's one of the places where the largest differences are going to be. Um, the public institutions are reliant on state and federal support in addition to their tuition dollars versus private institutions who have a wide variety of other support, financial supports. Mm-hmm. Um, and endowments, endowments that they never touch, apparently. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Um, so I think that's where we would see the largest difference. I mean, I want to be clear that the athletes in general have lower food and housing insecurity than your average college student, according to our main survey that came out in February. Okay. That said, and the Division I schools are lower than the other schools in this student-athlete report. So my gut is that the... The other thing here is that across the five years, we've had different schools and, and the students in those different schools participate. We've had very few repeat surveys, which means that we've surveyed over, I think it's nearly, what is it, over 500, no, over 400 colleges okay. across the five years. And we are, and over 300,000 students. And the rates don't change from year to year when we have a different sample. That's incredible. So to me, what that says is if the rates in the national survey are barely changing, I mean, they they shift around by a percentage point or two, but they're not substantial changes. And we know that's not over time because it's actually different groups of colleges participating. Mm -hmm. But the fact that for five years, different groups of colleges and different students participate and the rates aren't moving suggests to me that our measure is pretty strong and pretty, uh, what's the word, reliable. Yep. And so my guess is that if we were to look at private Division I schools, we would see those rates go down. But if we continued to look at the, what did you call them, Power Fives? I did call them Power Fives, yeah. yeah. Um, if we were to continue to look at those and other public Division Ones, I don't think we would see too much of a difference. That is, of course, a hypothesis. I sure. am ever the researcher, but... <laughs> um, I won't hold you to that. <laughs> thank you. But I think that's one of the things that points out is we need to know more. And I will use this to do a little plug, which is that anyone listening from a Division I school, we want to know more. Um, and we are specifically looking for Division I schools to participate in our survey next year. Um, we will actually have an expanded set of student-athlete questions, given the interest. And we would love to know more. Um, in general, private institutions don't participate in our survey um, for whatever reason. Interestingly, Duke actually asked us to come down and talk about the survey to their student government this year. We were very excited to do that. Um, But generally, we don't have privates participate. They are more than welcome. We have always welcomed them. We 
just have not had a lot of take up in those regions. I think it has to do with um, the level and capacity that their own research teams have, is my guess. But we would still love to do it. It would certainly fill out our data sets so we understood more about what was going on here. And how do folks get involved? All you have to do is go to our website. And actually, we are about 12 hours early for folks to sign up. Uh, We are opening enrollment tomorrow for the fall survey. Um, We always do this in the fall because, and this is an important piece when you're thinking about these students, we want to capture students who are trying to secure a higher education degree. And the reality is many of those students who are struggling for various reasons aren't going to make it to the spring semester, the spring term. So we always survey in the fall so we we get the best sense of everybody who's intending to do this, everybody who is matriculated in the fall and says, I'm here, I want to do this. And then we can better understand what some of their struggles are so that we can better support them in the future. But yes, go to hopecenter, hopeforcollege.com, and you can check us out there, and the enrollment page will be up shortly. In the meantime, we have a whole bunch of COVID resources um, So, for our higher ed practitioners and students. Great. Okay, well, we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, but before we do, I want to talk to you now about something that is always uh, on my mind when it comes to uh, issues around higher education sport um and kind of the experiences that athletes actually have um Mm -hmm. and so the thing that triggered me on this with respect to your study is actually that there was a kind of accompanying sports illustrated story that came out at the same same day the study was released and it was a really interesting piece um that interviewed a couple athletes Mm -hmm. and one of those athletes was temple university wide receiver uh trayvon williams Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to actually just read a sort of a lengthy-ish quote here um, so that we can kind of dig into uh, what it tells us about the context of college football more broadly. Because ultimately, my question is really, given the physical and time constraints posed by college football, is it possible in general to offer a college football player the kind of conditions that they need to thrive given the demands placed upon them. Um, so here's what we have. Yeah, it's a big question. Uh, it's a question I'm always thinking about. So uh, here's the quote we have. Um, and this is from Williams and it's right away. Because football is all during the day, you're going to work at night, William tells, Williams tells Sports Illustrated. You start work around 10 p.m. And by the time I look at the clock again, it's time to wake up for football. Mm-hmm. Williams says he averaged three to four hours of sleep a night between school, work, and football. The money helped cover whatever financial aid couldn't, but that still didn't leave enough for a meal plan. If he had practice in the morning, he was guaranteed breakfast, but that would be all until dinner time, unless he could find some snacks in between classes, quote, and then that would be it. Mm-hmm. His coaches noticed that he was losing weight, but he would convince them everything was fine. And we have, quote, they asked, like my strength coach was always asking, like, why are you weighing in so light? I'd say, I didn't eat enough yesterday, coach. My bad, I'll fix it. Williams didn't want to bring any attention to his situation and risk not being able to play, so he dealt with the consequences, which included intense migraines. Quote, you don't eat, and so your head just starts hurting. So you start getting migraines from not eating. I would get those in class. Meals would sometimes consist of nutritionally deficient food that was cheap. Food insecurity isn't only about being hungry. 
It's also about the inability to eat the type of food your body needs to sustain itself. Sometimes, as he was trying to go to sleep, it all just became too much for Williams. Quote, mad screaming into the pillow, he says, his voice quiet. Quote, like wanting to cry, especially with, on top of school, I'd be like, oh no, how am I to do this? End quote. So, I mean, clearly that's really powerful testimony about what it means to live under the kind of conditions that you've been describing here. Um, and it's a bigger question than just uh, access to food and housing, because for me, it's also a structural question around where football fits in higher education, right? Because we have this task mm -hmm. that takes players, I mean, it's not supposed to, but it takes them 40 hours a week, most of which is very, very hard punishing physical labor yeah. and so that means that when i have a student in my class who's a football player and they're falling asleep in class how could i possibly blame that individual for having that experience because i couldn't keep my eyes open in my class mm -hmm. if i was kind of experience that individual is and so we take that and then what i am not normally considering when i approach this in my own research is what you're bringing to the table here this food insecurity piece for instance which is really salient in his testimony yeah um, i'm just curious kind of what you make of all that I think I'm going to take one of the sentences he says that is so powerful, which is, and that we have spent years trying to help the American public understand, which is food insecurity is not just eating ramen. Mm -hmm. um, however, it is also eating ramen if your body needs something other than ramen. Um, food insecurity is not being able to get the food your body needs. And I think William says that better than we usually do. Um, I think that is so powerful and it is, it completely highlights what we're trying to talk about here. The he did a wonderful quote there. The other thing I want to highlight is that temple, like it is very clear that he is working in addition to playing sports and in addition to school. And one of the things we see in our main report is that food and housing insecure students, you might think, oh, well, they're not working and they, you know, they're just trying to live off their scholarships and their loans. The reality is they are more likely to be working than the students who are not food and housing insecure. So these folks are trying everything they can to get by and to get through. Exactly. And it, it exacts a toll on their ability to get the education that they yeah. are paying so dearly for, they're becoming indebted for. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I always want people to think about is, because again, I, I look at Duke, that's the example that I'm living. Um, the, the price tag is, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I can't, I can't even <laughs> wrap my head around it. But I mean, the idea is, and this is always even the case for us at the University of Toronto, like you had to know, you, you've essentially opted in to every possible cost imaginable, right? You pay yes. for everything up front and i mean you get a lot for that it feels to the students like they're getting a lot but of course they paid for what they're getting um, and that means like for an institution like duke that means that in the summers you're getting access to programs abroad for instance mm -hmm. like really exciting opportunities right but again you've paid for those opportunities through your tuition fees um, mm -hmm. you might get access to incredible internships um, there are internships that duke offers on wall street and in silicon valley and all these things which obviously for students are deeply coveted uh, there are a reason why you try to come to a university like that especially like a private university that has all these networks of connections and so forth that folks can access if they can afford to attend um, but here's what I'm trying to get at. If you are a student athlete in this situation, 
right? You're mm-hmm. supposedly getting this incredible form of compensation, access to an institution like Duke for free, right? Right. Supposedly, because of this scholarship, some, it's amazing. All these other students are going to get to get access to all these great things. The only problem is, guess what you're doing during the summer yep. when those other students are going abroad? And guess what your grades look like because you're falling asleep in class because you were up at 6 a.m. for football practice. That's it. Exactly. It's not really possible structurally to do all these things at the same time. And you're literally prohibited from doing those summer activities because you got to be on campus taking summer school classes because the NCA requires it and then doing training for your team. And not every team's case, but in frankly, the, the vast majority of them, and certainly in those high revenue sports, there's no question yeah. that that's happening. Um, and then you're right. When it comes to the class experience, like the grades are one piece. So are you getting the grades you want that then open other doors? Since the mm-hmm. vast majority, as the NCAA itself acknowledges, the vast majority of these students are going pro in something other than sports. Yes. Right? But do they have the grades that are going to open those doors? So that's a question mark. Do they even get to take the classes that they want to take? Mm-hmm. Right? Because we have this phenomenon that's often called academic clustering, which is that they're literally funneled into the classes, A, that are perceived to be easier. Sometimes because the coaches literally have monetary incentives in their contracts for students to get higher grades, mm-hmm. but also potentially because they just literally have to take their classes outside of practice time, right? So yep. if the team practices every morning, you just can't take morning classes. Like people aren't trying to stop you. It's just not a possibility, right? And so again, that's something that the, regu- the so-called regular student isn't going to have to face in their right. experience. Anyway, it's tough. Uh, it's real. It's really the the more time I spend, kind of living the reality. And, and by the way, I have to say, like I you know, I use Duke as an example, but I I have to also say, I think that Duke is, and this is kind of came through in what you were describing, a best case scenario. Mm-hmm. I think because it's this private institution, um, it does offer its student athletes about the best that one of these institutions could under the circumstances. So when I'm highlighting and trying to underline structurally speaking, like why it is that it's not possible for athletes to get the education they're promised, that's in the best possible case scenario. Yep. And we have others. Right. We have other scenarios where we have, I mean, like we, we saw the, sca- the cheating scandal at the University of North Carolina, where students were taking paper classes, which is to say that they weren't even getting the education they were promised. Right. Yeah. And the way that people in popular culture take that up is like all oh, these cheating student athletes, so-called student athletes. Right. They just get the free ride scholarship. They get to play sports like sweet deal. Yeah. Except that they literally got nothing in return for their labor. They didn't even mm-hmm. get an education. They didn't even get to learn. And where are they left at the end of the process? The institution is left with all that revenue, right? It works beautifully for the institution. In fact, the players now can prioritize the teams. And that means they can spend more time on film, more time invested in practice without being distracted by that pesky homework, yeah. right? But the players get nothing for that. Uh, and it's, it's, it's devastating to me. <laughs> okay. Well, let's. Uh, so that, you know, I, I always have to go off on a little bit of a time. No, I'm. I, you're. We're with you. <laughs> we appreciate that. Uh, so, uh, one of your co-authors, um, Dr. Goldrick Rob, mm-hmm. wrote you know, a recent chronicle of higher education forum on the pandemic. And I'm going to quote here uh, in trying to think through kind of like what the pandemic means for all these issues. Yeah, sure. Right? So she wrote. The COVID-19 pandemic has revealed to many institutions the sizable gaps in their support services for students' basic needs. Those gaps will only continue to grow in the coming months as unemployment rates rise and students begin to question whether they will ever be able to return to their studies. It is critical for higher education to adopt a set of robust anti-poverty tools and to push for policy changes to support that work, end quote. My question here is then, 
what kinds of policies are required to meet this crisis from a student support standpoint? And are there ways those policies might be unique for student athletes? I'm gonna start with the student athletes. Please. Um, so for example, um, I mentioned this earlier, the CARES dollars and are going to come through soon to higher ed institutions. In fact, some of it's already gone through. Um, those dollars are meant to provide basic needs supports for students in higher education. Um, there are dollars for general supports and there are dollars for something called emergency aid, which we talk about a lot, which is the ability to, you reach out to your college, to your student affairs person or to your faculty member that you're close with and you say, my, my tire, I just got a flat tire. You send them an email. I got a flat tire. I can't make it to class today. I'm not sure when I'll be able to make it to class because I can't afford to get that tire fixed. That's an emergency that costs $100 and the student doesn't have it. And without that, the student is no longer going to be able to attend classes. They're going to fall behind. They might not be able to make it to their job and therefore not be able to pay their rent or their tuition bill or whatever. So we are pushing for, we have been pushing for emergency aid programs for a while now. We are thrilled that they're in these CARES dollars. But as of now, the way that many of the restrictions are written for student athletes, particularly those on scholarships, we're not clear that we, let me rephrase that, we are asking that the NCAA allow CARES dollars and other emergency aid to be used on student athletes. We are also suggesting the NCAA waive the moratorium on third-party payments for food and housing for student-athletes. Um, those are our two specific suggestions at this point. Um, we are, there's also this concern that, you know, depending on what happens with sports over the next six months, um, I saw your, it's such an interesting time for you all to be beginning your podcast. Yes. Um, it's, it's very intriguing and I would love to hear more about that at some point. But if we don't go back to college campuses in the fall and if there aren't fall sports, what does that mean for student athletes and their scholarships? We're do the NFL draft is today, right? Or tomorrow. Um, and that's happening for the NFL, but it's, I am sure that most students who are on athletic scholarship or anticipating to be on athletic scholarship are not sure what's going to happen in the next six months. And that's a concern for when they go back to college. But I can also imagine it's a concern right now and may impact their decisions to go to college if they don't believe they'll have those scholarships available. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and frankly, one of the things you said, because it's kind of, it's, it's a persistent theme in the response to this pandemic. And I, I sometimes kind of uh, freewheel a little bit uh, beyond sport, uh, because I sure. try not to shut up and dribble here, but also sort of <laughs> about, um, broader issues as well, right? In the, in the larger context of American politics and political economy, um, you know, it's ridiculous that it, it takes a crisis for us to suddenly to think, Oh, okay, like people actually deserve to be allowed to survive. Um, right. your, your medical expenses can be covered if you have this one specific issue, the coronavirus, but uh, if you have diabetes, no, absolutely not. No, that's, that's still an issue you're going to have to work out between you and your insurance provider uh, and your physician. 
right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, same issue in terms of like, can you pay your bills in any sense? Um, and we're not even, I mean, when we thought, we thought we might have a moment where we would receive some form of universal basic income or something like that, as we've seen in the European yeah. country, Canada. Uh, turns out we're not getting that either. So there's some consistency there <laughs> in terms of how <laughs> this, this nation state is managing uh, the crisis with its uh, previous history of punitive policy towards working people. But what I'm trying to get at here is you pointed out that wouldn't it be nice if the NCAA could waive its policies around third-party funding for athletes, right? Like third-party funding that literally is necessary to avoid homelessness and food insecurity. In the pandemic, maybe, please, could we afford students like some relief in that regard? And I was wondering, because you you cited in your study in in the kind of preamble or the introduction, could you tell us maybe for a minute about the story of Silas Nasida uh, at Baylor? Because I think that really exemplifies the kind of tragedy of how the NCAA approaches these issues in general and how the kind of technicalities of that rule book have no regard whatsoever for the human experience that athletes go through. Do you want to pull out what you're thinking is so poignant about that? Because it is an amazing story. Absolutely. I mean, so if folks want to hear more about it, they can, they can, um, they can see the uh, a very powerful HBO film, Student Athlete, mm-hmm. uh, which is produced by LeBron James, among others, and and um, tells the story of a, a few athletes, uh, as well as one coach, and kind of the various ways in which their experience as um, revenue sport athletes becomes kind of a dehumanizing process for them. And Nasita's story is one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, this is an individual who had to walk on at Baylor. And um, he did so out of an intense passion, as he articulates in the film, an intense passion for the sport uh, as something, you know, like as a driving source of meaning in his life. It was something that he deeply wanted to do. And he was, in fact, incredibly successful for the team as a walk-on to the point that he was playing in games as a, as a freshman, uh, scoring touchdowns, etc. But he was homeless mm-hmm. at the time. And as a consequence of that, and he had a situation where I, I can't remember the details, but I think it may have been um, some fellow classmate, uh, another student at the institution had, um, I think it was grandparents who kind of decided when they heard of what was happening to him to try to support his ability to have room and board uh, during his time at Baylor. And when the NCAA got wind of it, that's the long and short of it, uh, they disqualified him and he was permanently disqualified from participation uh, at the university as a football player. Uh, And so I think what's so powerful about that story is that it tells us that even when the individual is literally not costing the institution anything, in fact, Mm -hmm. at a private institution like Baylor, I can only imagine that the the young man was in some way, I mean, maybe he was receiving financial aid from one place or another, but I mean, like, you know, $50,000 worth of tuition and fees, et cetera, potentially, we're on the hook there, Um, some, some number like that. Um, he's paying that. It's not being paid to him. He's a walk-on. And yet, he's not allowed to give his labor for free in that context. So, of course, I'm sure that Baylor would have been thrilled if he continued attending the institution, right? And they could continue mm-hmm. to reap those fees. Um, so, it just it te- what, what that story says to me is that this is a fundamentally broken system. Right. Yeah. This isn't a band-aid. There's no band-aid solution for this. Um, this isn't a pandemic-caused problem. This is a problem that's always been there, uh, and I think it's going to be compounded because this is what you were getting at with respect to the question of: Are we going to see football in the fall? 
right? It's a real yeah. question at this point, because I know that we are not seeing students on campus in the summer. So that means that we're not going to see training in the summer. I think that that's mm -hmm. a given. But I also know that Boston University, for instance, has floated the idea of not starting again until January. I'm not even sure that they're, I think they're contemplating not even having remote instruction in the fall. Right. Um, so clearly it's not possible. In fact, NCAA leaders in conversation with the president of this country kind of articulated that even they understood that the optics of having college sports when students couldn't even be on campuses was probably going a little bit too far for them, right? Because that was going to compromise the concept yeah. of amateurism, right? Which is well, all that I mean, you saw what happened with the uh, Big East tournament, right? That yes. was when it all went down. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and it was just, I mean, like the, the hypocrisy of that, like even because, I mean, for the NCAA, it's all about image in that sense, right? Because it's not, it's not actually a question of amateurism. It's a question of extracting revenue from these student athletes for as little cost to them as possible. That, it's, a, it's a labor question. Well, um, and you, your last podcast, you were talking about the potential issues with athletes playing and the danger to their health during COVID. That's right. Exactly. And I mean, I, Again, I, I don't think that that is top of mind for the NCAA. I mean, they, no. would, they would deny this, obviously, but I don't think that that's what's driving these concerns. I think it's an optics question right now in that they can't justify it because it's too obvious to the world. Like, if it's not safe for our other students to be near each other, then probably <laughs> it's not safe for our student-athletes to be near each other either. So we probably can't kind of um, play that game in this moment. Um, yeah. but, but, but the potential financial cost to that is enormous. And, and these universities are terrified uh, across, uh, especially, especially Division I, where we have so much revenue coming in. Yeah. Um, I think at some of the lower levels, there may be this question where, where we don't have the costs associated with the team that maybe not be bringing as much revenue. So there's kind of like a bit of an offsetting factor there. Um, but yeah, in Division One, in the Power Five, it's a, it's a huge issue. And... Um, no doubt it's going to be downloaded in some way right to these same players ultimately yep. I, mean, I can only imagine that that's how we're going to see it play out ultimately well christine uh, baker smith it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with me today thank you so much for coming on the podcast and i wish you all the very best in your research moving forward on housing and food insecurity among college athletes thank you so much nathan it's been a pleasure to be here